Hello and welcome to Embodying Change, a series of conversations on care and compassion in aid and development. I'm Marianne Clements and today in this podcast you'll hear my colleague Melissa Pitotti with whom I'm collaborating on a project being incubated by CHS Alliance which is looking at building care and compassion in aid and humanitarian work. In this podcast Melissa is talking with Kate Gilmore, the United Nations Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights. You'll hear them talk about well-being in the UN system and in other humanitarian work about how Kate sees the connections between the personal and the political and about some examples of how she's tried to challenge the way that power exists in her work and help release it so that people can work in different ways. I hope you'll enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much to those of us who have tuned into Embodying Change. This is a podcast guest series on change-making women. And I'm so pleased to have with us today, Ms. Kate Gilmore. She is the United Nations Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights. She's been in this job, I think, since the 1st of December, 2015. Is that right? Uh, Around then, exactly. Exactly. Around then. Excellent. So um, I actually became familiar with your work, Ms. Gilmore, when we were working within the UN and interagency setting on prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. And uh, as I jumped into this project, looking at care and compassion in aid organizations, I encountered many uh, staff members of OHCHR who really appreciated your advocacy within the organization about mental health. For our listeners who might not be familiar, um, do you mind saying just a little bit about yourself? Yeah. No, thank you so much. Uh, You know, as Deputy High Commissioner to Michelle Bachelet in the UN system, uh, it's my job to help uh, on the operational side, of course, of the organization, and then back up the High Commissioner as needed in communicating with member states, with civil society, and beyond on human rights concerns of the day. Uh, But I take um, particular pleasure, and it's been a real source of joy, to work with my colleagues who are the staff of uh, the UN Human Rights Office, both to improve how we go about our work, but also to improve how they feel as they do stressful, demanding, sometimes uh, emotionally very draining work. Excellent. So um, along those lines, we've heard of many people working on human rights and humanitarian work. Uh, They're struggling with higher rates than in the general population of overwhelm, exhaustion, anxiety, depression, PTSD, hazardous drinking. Um, Does this seem right to you? Do do you think that this is the case in the work that you've seen? Um, I... uh, I would find it difficult to assert as if a fact that it's particularly worse for human rights workers than, for example, for humanitarian workers, which in turn I would want to distinguish those working in headquarters from those working really on the contact lines in the toughest of places at the toughest of times. So I I think there needs to be some differentiation. Uh, depending on context, depending on the role and resources you have. Uh, And furthermore, my goodness, I wouldn't want to compare uh, working for the United Nations with working for 
an NGO, which in turn I would not want to compare working for an NGO or the United Nations to being homeless, to being stateless, mm -hmm. to being somebody caught up in a refugee camp. And I, so I'm very, you know, very mindful about relative strain and relative distress. Mm -hmm. All those things being said, what I am absolutely persuaded by, not only in terms of, you know, what, I, what I've seen, but most importantly, what my colleagues tell me, is that in organisations, we have underestimated how important are the emotional dimensions of our work. Even though I guess the literature has often spoken of morale, often spoken of motivation and inspiration, what the literature does, does not deal well with is how much emotional labour is involved in doing work centred on being compassionate, centred on uh, positioning assets and resources and support close to people who have been traumatised. And inevitably, because if you're to be empathetic and compassionate, you, you sort of do become a sponge to some extent. That means you do need to feel the other as you're relating to them, as you're documenting their story, as you're making assessment of need, as you're standing in solidarity with them. And that means, of course, at the end of your working day or the end of a tough period of work, you can find yourself drenched effectively in the emotional, your emotional reaction to what you've heard, what you've been told, what you've seen and what you can and can't do. And I, I think modern organisational form, particularly those rooted in very Western traditions, have negated the emotional cost of that labour and the emotional labour that compassion and empathy involves. And therefore, we sometimes get ourselves in really deep doo-doo, a very technical term. <laughs> I would like to uh, tweet that out. <laughs> Deep doo-doo of organisation. Because we think of ourselves as functions and structures and grades and posts and reporting lines. But hello, we're human beings as well. And that means we are, uh, thankfully, people of emotion and reaction at the emotional level. We're not just brains on legs. Uh, so dealing with the heart and with how we feel about ourselves in that work is neglected, even ridiculed, and is something we need to get much smarter uh, about. That's really resonant with um, something I've just been reading recently is this document, Navigating to the Next UN. Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. By yeah. young people. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it concludes by saying putting people at the centre, voilà. um, uh, talking about not putting us into boxes. So having this more human human-centered approach really resonates with what you just said. Um, I'm curious about your own personal story in terms of how did you get interested in, uh, in, the, in the element of uh, well-being of the people that you work with, your colleagues? Did, was there something that prompted it or was it just a gradual thing? Um, you know, uh, I'm a feminist in terms of my political outlook. And I, when I was young and learning at the knee of my feminist mothers uh, the, the political framing of gender relations and gender politics. I think the lesson that stuck with me very deeply uh, is that um, politics are personal 
They're not just public. And how you are, who you are, how you relate to others and how you own your own uh, self in the midst of your political journey is absolutely essential. You must be accountable for that and accountable to that in a way. And once you, you start thinking in that personalist political um, dimension of things, then you have to start to examine matters of emotion, of psychology, of personal behaviour, of how you treat another person and how you react to what is happening to the other person. So the, the, I just thank my, uh, my feminist mother's uh, you know, university in community in my, in my network for teaching me that lesson very early on. Oh, that's really great. We've we found with our mapping for compassion and caring organizations that a lot of good practices coming out of feminist movements, a lot of um, organizations trying to, like you're saying, embody the change that they want to see in the world by trying new ways of working. So it's really interesting that you've coming from that angle. Um, why, why do you think staff well-being is so important and should be a priority? Um, well, the particularly in our organizations that are dependent upon colleagues and their ability to relate to others, um, uh, then all we have are the people that our colleagues are. That's, that's all we have. Now, I, I have uh, one of my, uh, my brothers is a, is a doctor and he chose to, I don't know, do surgery or and, and I recall saying to him, Andrew, why did you do that? He said, because the patient is more often unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it has stayed with me, cheeky, uh, cheeky boy that he is. Uh, and because, um, you, you know, the, it, particularly in, in human rights, uh, particularly in the context of humanitarian work, specifically when offering services and care when in a way stepping in for functions that the state would otherwise provide. We are in a human to human relationship. You know, we, we don't often as the United Nations um, and particularly in contexts where people are actually living, we ourselves are the main instrument and tool with which we're working. And I think unless ourselves are in, in fine state, in fine form, and we ourselves are taking responsibility for our own uh, emotional uh, state, then we can quickly become more of a problem and less of part of the solution. So uh, our colleagues couldn't be more important in terms of their health and well-being, but not as children to a parent, but in an adult-to-adult -adult relationship, meaning we all have to be joined to taking responsibility for that rounded wellness that we need in order to uh, undertake our work, our work effectively for the United Nations and as humanitarian actors more broadly. Mm, all right. Um, one of the things we're looking at with our project, uh, which is linked to the core humanitarian standard, which lays out responsibilities for agencies, managers, and individuals on well-being, um, we know there's standards of care and yeah. they're just not being met. So one of the things we're trying to understand is what are the main barriers to people meeting their responsibilities? Um, from your experience, what do you think could be one or two of the main barriers? 
Well, I, you know, often we put in place standards and not the resources and the upskilling to enable those standards to come come alive. It's in the nature of bureaucracies that it's easiest to write stuff down. It's harder, more expensive and more time-consuming to make the stuff you've written down come alive. So you can't, uh, you know, with standards, you should not be a try to be a little bit pregnant. I mean, you either get right in behind the bloody things or don't have them. But this, <laughs> this idea that because you've written it down, suddenly standards have taken hold. We all know it's silly, but it, it, it's sort of in our busyness that writing stuff down and saying stuff is the same as doing stuff and it's not. The, third, uh, the second thing I would just say on standards, and, and here I, it's more how do we shift practice mm. and how do we uh, motivate and lift people out of routines with which they've become, uh, say, familiar or on which they depend. And I think we must admit that uh, although we speak a lot about changing the world, uh, we're not much good at changing ourselves. And we don't, we don't sort of notice how habitual much of our practice is and how much easier it is uh, to keep doing something with which you're familiar rather than to become vulnerable in the transition from the familiar to taking on uh, new ways of working. And uh, for me... Uh, therefore, we have to make change much more a competency mm-hmm. in our organisations, not an event, not something to be resisted or resented, but if we're not change competent, we do not belong in the humanitarian sector. If we're not change competent, please don't work for the United Nations. Go and work <laughs> for KPMG. If you're not change competent, don't come into work. We need change agents. We need change actors and people capable, competent and loving the engendering of change. That's beautiful. We, we um, in the Healing Solidarity Conference last week, heard from Mary Jane Rial from the Philippines who um, is working with her partners on a new feminist movement in Asia. And she said, we've introduced all these new um, supports for staff and they're not using them because... There's, they've become so used to exploiting themselves. <laughs> yeah, I, and again, I, I think sometimes the familiar, even if it's toxic, feels easier than going through that process of um, uh, detoxing, <laughs> letting go of the familiar in order to pick up the new and the healthier. Uh, and anyone who's confused gym membership with actually getting fit, is familiar with exactly that dynamic. (laughs) Buy the membership fee, you can pay the membership fee, but that won't get you fit. You know, you really do have to come in wholeheartedly into the new practice in order to become healthier. And it is tough. And, And if you've only ever seen poor conduct, low standards, old fashioned ways of working, you may not even believe that it's possible to do something in a better way. Hmm. And that will bring to the, one of the last questions we have is finding out what we have as the barriers. And we've talked a lot about shifting practice, doing something wholeheartedly. What could be some of the potential solutions that we could look at together um, to invest in potentially some of the root causes of our stress? Oh no. Um, (laughs) You know, I I think there are three really important things and 
the way you would calibrate these varies according to your organisation and your setting and your place. First of all, we need to model different behaviour as leaders. You know, the, the idea of the heroic leader who is blind, deaf uh, to uh, their impact and consequences for others and who we all simply seek to serve, that must come to an end. You know, and, and we must demand of our leadership uh, very different modelling behaviour than we currently have. It, it isn't authentic it, and it won't be sincere um, and experienced as sincere if we don't get different styles of leadership emerging in our organisations wherever we are. Less hierarchical, more humane, able to acknowledge our own limits as leaders, to share those limits and to appreciate that there may be others who know more, who are wiser uh, than perhaps we are, and, and to really celebrate that. I think unless health is led from the head down, as it were, <laughs> uh, it's very hard for health to take hold. But the second thing is, and I go back to this, which I think is the other side of the same coin of hierarchy, is I am amazed in organisations how everybody looks up. Everyone's obsessed with the top part of the hierarchy. Very few people are conscious with those who are looking up to them. And, the, and all of us, in fact, should be looking out, look out into the world for strength and for courage, for confidence and resolve. Uh, the number of colleagues who come to me and say, I feel so demoralised because I have um, not been promoted in X number of years. And I, I want them, of course, I, I, I wish that there were ways for everyone to be rewarded in currencies they appreciate. But my gosh, sitting here in Geneva where I do sit and people talk to me about that, I, I mean, I wish we could look at the people on the streets of Hong Kong to Santiago, you know, in Bolivia, Ecuador, in Lebanon, um, in Iraq. And, and my goodness, take our strength, our determination and our confidence from there because that's the greatest renewable energy we have. And, and you know, I, I mean, just please recall Nelson Mandela was jailed for 27 years. He did not come out in, in uh, his 27th year bitter, twisted, resentful, decimated, cynical, tired. He came out with love, with a message of tolerance, a message of reaching out and a message of engagement, courage and hope. So until and unless, honestly, as a member of staff, in our organisations until and unless you've also been imprisoned for 28 years, don't be talking to me about how tough your life is. Please, <laughs> please not. And, and don't become complicit in your own disempowerment in whatever narrative form you're bringing to, you know, where you are in your agency. This to me is enormously precious. The third thing is, look, in organisations... Change is a numbers game. Management does not have the numbers. Non-managers are the numbers. Mm. If you believe and can see clearly 
um, something that can uplift your colleagues uh, in order that your organisation delivers prof more profoundly on its mandate, not just so that privileged people become more privileged, but deliver on the mandate. You can organise, you can form community of effort, mm -hmm. you can demonstrate. There is always something you can do. And the reason why I know this is true, that people can always do something despite management, is the number of times in my career anyway, I, as a manager, I've been involved in making a decision that then is never implemented. <laughs> <laughs> because people subvert and resist, maybe for good reasons. <laughs> I know that subversion and resistance and counter-organisation for counter-culture is always an option. And I, and I trust if you put the mandate of your organisation first and you do so in solidarity with colleagues, it is amazing what you could facilitate. Please, every time you're narrating your powerlessness, narrate at the same time your powerfulness and then think again about what you can and can't do. I think that's really powerful. We've seen the International Committee of the Red Cross, for example, staff have created their own culture of care and go. they um, provide support to each other. There we uh, go. Things like digital detox. Fantastic. So really, I really like that. To conclude our interview today, I was um, really interested to know if you have any examples you'd like to share of, um, you called it the personal, politics are personal, yeah. um, the embodying change piece. Um, we've heard many organizations are trying new ways of working, and I've heard that you are also doing yeah. some things with your people. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with us and our listeners who are desperately seeking examples of good practice? Well, it would be um, uh, pro probably uh, in no way correct for me to say anything I've done is good practice. I can tell you what I've tried uh, for what it's worth and thank you for making me be uh, practical. <laughs> Um, so what did it mean, uh, say, when I came to work for the UN Human Rights Office? Um, first and foremost, um, when I arrived, I asked them to remove the desk from my room, uh, from my office, and I, I sought to, and, I, and, and in doing that on day one, what I sought to do was take away the sense of power and authority or the iconography of power and authority that so often is part of our exchange with, with each other. And instead I had, um, you know, I did have the opportunity, it's my privilege of having some uh, a lounge and some, uh, some more relaxed chairs. Uh, I, I also, you know, inherited a round table for people to sit at when we meet. I know it sounds a bit weird or strange, uh, but it's the best thing I ever did. It completely transformed the power relationships in that particular space. It furthermore signalled to people that I had no proprietorial relationship with that space, which is interesting, and we subsequently have tried to use it more as a meeting room, particularly when I'm not there or whatever. And it happens to be, of course, because you're a you know, you're in the, a certain place in the hierarchy, happens to be a very big and lovely office. So it had a certain symbol. The second thing I did was um, introduce with my colleagues something called hard talks. It's just another example. Uh, borrowing uh, the, the title of a BBC um, 
sort of in interrogation journalism program where a journalist uh, gives uh, whoever the guest is a hard time. Um, what, what we did was uh, introduce hard talks where I, as one of the senior managers, effectively sits in the middle of a room surrounded by staff and according to what the topic of the day is, I'm basically interrogated by the staff who in turn reflect with each other on what the issue is. What's been important with hard talks, and we've done 20 or 19 of them, I think, uh, uh, over the last uh, three or four years, has been to pick a topic that's controversial or taboo. So we've not picked soft or um, easy topics, and we have tried to bring out the corridors of uh, informal space and into this more official conversation between management and staff, the taboo topics. And a hard talks of, you know, it, it was a symbol again, but I think it triggered then a whole range of other things um, uh, because we were trying to model a different set of power relationships. And, and, you know, as a senior person, be vulnerable and be exposed to um, the, the more raw, troubled, afraid, sad, uh, excited conversations that people usually only have as peers. And we're trying to release that energy in the house. So two simple things that, that were about trying to realign power. And thinking of power not as structure, but as power as dynamic. And that mm. if you can, um, if you unblock one part of the river system, power can flow into all sorts of other parts of an overall system that you would never expect. And uh, that's certainly been my uh, experience at the UN Human Rights Office. Excellent. And the nice thing uh, uh, to observe about both of those examples is that they probably didn't cost a lot of money. They costed nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> <Exactly>. Wonderful. Well, <laughs> that brings us to the end of the interview, but I just want to say thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. For sharing this. Um, it's really important for us to hear from more leaders like you to show that this is, uh, like you say, it's a topic that maybe had some taboo or stigma before, yeah. but we need to create spaces to have these conversations. So much appreciation to you and good luck with the rest of your uh, year. To you and this wonderful project that you're leading. I'm, I'm so thrilled that there is this conversation being facilitated and thank you for taking us forward in that way. Thank you for listening to Embodying Change, a series of conversations on care and compassion in aid and development. This podcast is supported by CHS Alliance, the Global Fund for Community Foundations, Changemaking Women and Healing Solidarity. The show was produced and edited by Ziada Abade and the music for it was written and recorded by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com.